Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. We're drawing nearer and nearer to the start of the school year in some parts of the country, so I'm told. Schools have already started, and if you or any of your family are in school, I hope it's going well. I hope you're safe and sane. Hopefully, your school district has chosen to do remote learning. We've already seen, if you're in the United States, what happened when schools in Georgia and North Carolina tried to do a traditional in-person learning model, and yeah, it didn't go well. This is going to be the second to last episode on women artists of the Harlem Renaissance. Basically, this series is just going to be writers and artists. Originally, I was also going to include performers, dancers, singers, etc. But then I realized that if I did such a wide umbrella, the series was going to be many, many months long. And while I find all of these women fascinating, I have basically no background in the more performing arts side of things. And I felt like I wouldn't be able to do those women quite as much justice. They definitely are on my to-do list at some point. But for now, it's just going to be writers and artists. And once I wrap up this series, I have a really exciting one planned. It's less chronologically themed and more thematic. But I think it's going to be really cool. With all of that said... Today's episode is going to be about Lois Milou Jones. Of all the people I've covered in this series, she is the one who comes closest to our current moment. She lived almost until 2000, which I think is super cool. I don't think I've had a subject yet on the study guides whose life actually intersected with mine. So, yay. That is super exciting, in my opinion. Lois Milou Jones's study guide has some pretty fantastic summer vacations, a run-in with international police, and fetishes. But no, not that type of fetish. Let's begin. Lois Milou Jones was born November 3rd, 1905, in Boston, Massachusetts. Her parents were Thomas Freeland Jones and Carolyn Dorinda Adam Jones. They had one other child, a son, John, who was nine years older than Lois. Both of Lois's parents were members of the African-American working class within Boston. Her mother, Carolyn, worked as a beautician, while her father, Thomas, was a building superintendent in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston, who, in addition to his work, took night classes at Suffolk University Law School and would eventually become the first African-American man in Boston to get a law degree when Lois was 10 years old. Even though the Joneses family weren't exactly well-off, growing up, she had the privilege of going to Martha's Vineyard every single summer. And in the early 1900s, and even nowadays, Martha's Vineyard is a bit of an enclave for Boston's wealthy, and even the wealthy from outside of Boston. Basically, it's the place where the elite of New England come and gather. So how the heck did Lois and her family 
make it there. Well, Lois's grandmother, specifically her mother's mother, had been one of the first non-white people to summer on the island in her own right. Initially, Lois's grandmother had worked for a wealthy Boston family, and she had become so close to this wealthy white family that they had invited her to the island as a guest, and she really enjoyed visiting the island, and she was determined that she was going to go to the island in her own right, and eventually managed to buy some land on Martha's Vineyard. So Lois's mother, Carolyn, grew up going to Martha's Vineyard as a child. And by the time Lois was born, her parents had begun renting a summer home of their own on the island each year. However, because the Joneses weren't exactly well off, they split this home that they rented with another African-American family called from Boston, the West family. And the West family had a daughter, Dorothy, who would grow up to be an essayist and a short story writer during the Harlem Renaissance. So even as a young child, Lois was making connections with people who were going to be very central in what would one day be the Harlem Renaissance. In addition to making these connections that she probably wasn't even aware of, from an early age, Lois was really into art, and her parents were super supportive of this interest, even though they didn't always have the money to completely give her their financial backing, but they did their best to save money in order to buy Lois the crayons, colored pencils, and watercolors she needed. Lois ended up attending a local art school, the High School of Practical Arts in Roxbury, Massachusetts, which is now the Dearborn STEM Academy. And as a side note, a few years ago when I was teaching in Massachusetts, a few years ago when I was teaching in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston, I actually walked past the Dearborn STEM Academy whenever I would walk home from my teaching job instead of taking the bus. At the time, obviously, I did not know of the building's history, but hey, now I do. Starting in her late teens, Lois began taking weekend art classes at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And pretty soon, due to her talent, she began getting scholarships from the museum, which allowed her to take more and more classes there. By the time she was a senior in high school, she was taking classes at the Museum of Fine Art six days a week. When Lois was 17 years old, she had her first official art show in Martha's Vineyard at the house of a family friend. It was through this art show that she was able to meet some Boston-based African-American artists who had decided to spend the summer on the island because, like I mentioned, that's what you did if you had any money whatsoever in Boston in the early 1900s. While these African-American artists pushed her to keep pursuing her interest in art, they told her that the only way a woman and a non-white artist would ever get ahead in the art world would be to leave the United States and head over to Europe, specifically France, where there was way less re racial discrimination. Lois took this in, but she didn't necessarily follow this advice. 
After she graduated high school, she did not go to France. Instead, she got a full scholarship to attend the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and she decided to take the offer. After all, who among us is going to turn down a full scholarship to college? Ultimately, she was encouraged to go to the School of the Museum of Fine Arts by a Boston-based sculptor, Meta Warwick Fuller, who Lois had met before on Martha's Vineyard, and who was very friendly with Auguste Rodin. And if there's a sculptor who's BFFs with Rodin, well, take their advice. At the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Lois made a reputation for herself, for her talent, graduated with honors, and was in fact the first African-American student to graduate from the school. A few years later, she got a master's in textile design, as well as, and still managed to find the time to take additional classes at the Massachusetts College of Art. During her time at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Lois started to have solo exhibitions of her own, the first one occurring when she was only 18 years old. So I think it's fair to say that Lois Milou Jones was quite the talented young artist. She also briefly became an assistant to Grace Ripley, a costume and mask designer for a local Boston-based dance company. During this job, one of the masks that Lois had designed on her own had a photo taken, and this photo ended up making the cover of Opportunity magazine. So Lois, who was barely 20 at the time, was already becoming known in African-American-based art circles, and she hadn't even graduated college. During her time working on her master's degree, Lois also started to work professionally within the field of textile design. She started to sell some of her designs to local department stores, and once those took off, she ended up selling her designs to some national companies as well. This meant that unlike a lot of her contemporaries, as well as artists even nowadays, Lois was making quite a bit of money very early on in her career. However, a lot of her work was completely anonymous. Her name wasn't actually attached to the fabric when it was being sold in stores. And Lois just wasn't a fan of this, especially because a lot of white buyers refused to believe that she was even capable of making the products that they were purchasing. After being consistently fed up by the racism of her buyers, Lois decided that she would rather have her name on her work, even if it meant leaving behind textile and design work for a different type of art, aka drawing and painting. In 1928, when she was only 23 years old, Lois decided it was time for her to leave Boston. Even though Boston was in the northern part of the United States, which meant that there weren't official Jim Crow laws and segregation officially wasn't on the books, she felt like there weren't really any opportunities for a non-white woman, which was true. Even nowadays, Boston has a reputation for, let's face it, being a pretty racist city. Lois had even been denied a job at the Museum of Fine Arts, the school that had put her on the map. 
So she moved to North Carolina, where she helped com- where she helped create the art department at the Palmer Memorial Institute, a high school for wealthy African Americans. Through her work there, she then got asked to teach at Howard University in Washington, D.C. when she was only 25 years old. This promotion, this job at Howard, meant two things. One, Lois's talent was being recognized. After all, she was super young, 25, I am over the age of 25, just for reference, and the administration at Howard thought she was talented enough to teach for them, and two, Howard University was deeply connected to the Harlem Renaissance. A lot of thinkers from the Harlem Renaissance either went to Howard or had taught at Howard at some point in their career, and by teaching there, Lois was going to get the opportunity to be deeply surrounded and steeped in all of these various ideologies. She would end up staying at Howard for the next 47 years, and during her time at Howard, she would teach watercolor and design. Even though Lois was mostly teaching for the next 47 years, she did occasionally travel. Starting in the 1930s, she took a series of trips to Europe, and probably the most important of these trips was a 1937 fellowship-funded visit to Paris. During this visit, Lois studied at the Academy Julian, where for the first time in her career, she really focused on outdoor painting and began to accept a more impressionistic style. The paintings she made on the Paris trip were a huge success, and several of her paintings were accepted into the 1938 Salon. With the acceptance of these paintings, Lois became one of the first African-American artists to become famous outside of the United States. In addition, Lois said that France was key to her development as an artist because it allowed her to be socially and mentally free, or as she put it in her own words, shackle-free for the first time, and without having to worry constantly about her race and about segregation, she was really able to fully dive into her art. Also, during this trip to Paris, she really started to get interested in African art and African themes. African themes had been commonly used in European art since about the 1910s. Primitivism had been a really key part in the rise of the abstract art movement, but it had mostly just been used by white artists, such as Picasso and Matisse. A lot of African-American artists had sort of shied away from its use because they didn't want to accidentally embrace negative racial stereotypes. However, Lois began to incorporate elements of traditional African art into her own art, albeit in a very non-stereotypical way, instead in a way that truly embraced the culture and the diversity of these elements. She felt like that as an African woman, she should be able to embrace her culture and show how beautiful it was. 
Lastly, while Lois was in France, because she didn't really know French that well, or at all, she needed an interpreter, and she ended up getting a local student to help interpret for her. The student's name was Celine Tabari, and Celine was also an artist, and the two would end up becoming extremely close friends for the rest of their lives, and Celine would play a very important role in Lois's later career. By 1940, Lois was back in the United States. Part of this was because political things were heating up in Europe, cough, cough, Adolf Hitler, and part of it was more practical. Lois's funding had run out. She had to go back to Howard and resume teaching. By the time Lois returned to the United States, her art had shifted yet again and now was focusing very heavily on the daily life of African Americans. She was especially interested in using her art to show how much of an impact discrimination and segregation played in daily African American art, and this shift in her art was part of a much larger shift in African American art as a whole to portray what life was like for the average African American. Lois was not the only person doing this, obviously. Alan Locke had been pushing for African-American art to do this since the 1910s. And Lois's shift was really a direct response to Alan Locke himself to challenge her to capture African-American culture and not just the still lives in nature that she had been capturing in her earlier pieces. Locke was especially interested in Lois doing this because so many French artists had been co-opting and appropriating traditional African-American imagery in their work, and he felt like it was time for an African-American artist who had studied in France to do the same. And she did. And these new pieces were super popular and were hugely critically acclaimed. Reproductions of her paintings were getting printed in newspapers across the country. Despite this, though, Lois was still facing huge amounts of discrimination in her career due to both her gender and her race. Lois struggled to get her work sold and placed in exhibitions, especially compared to her white and male contemporaries. For example, in 1941, when Lois submitted one of her paintings to a competition sponsored by the Kokoran Gallery in Washington, D.C., which at the time was a major museum, she had to submit it under the name of her friend Celine, who by then had immigrated from France to the United States because of a little thing called World War II, because the competition would not accept works by African-American artists. And remember, by this point, Lois was a well-known professor and an extremely established artist. And even after Lois won first place inside competition, she had to keep her identity under wraps due to racism if she wanted to keep the prize. In fact, Lois wasn't publicly recognized as the winner of this competition until 1994, over 50 years later. For context, I was born in 1994. That's how long it took. That's how insidious 
racism in the art world was both then and even now. However, eventually, because of Lois's reputation and the fact that she kept winning competitions, even under false names and pretending to be a white woman, usually using her friend Celine's identity, some museums and galleries eventually began to allow her and a few other prominent African-American artists to submit their works into competition and to enter their works into shows. In 1945, Lois and Celine opened a studio together in D.C. to help promote the work of young African-American artists. After all, it was one thing if well-established artists were allowed to enter their work into competition, but that didn't help new artists who were struggling to get their foot in the door and to be recognized. The same year that Lois and Celine opened their studio together, Lois also got a BA from Howard University. Like I said, very busy woman. When she wasn't teaching, she was creating art. And when she wasn't creating art, she was doing her best to ensure that the art world was a more equitable place. For the next few years, that's what Lois's life looked like. Teaching, art, fighting for justice. Then in 1953, things started to change a little bit. When Lois got married, her husband was Louis Renigo Piernol, a Haitian artist and designer. The two had actually met as students decades earlier when they had taken summer classes together in the 1920s at Columbia University. At the time, they had hit it off, but the relationship hadn't ever quite gone anywhere. But they promised to keep in touch. Louis, Louis had given Lois a photograph and had told her to remember him, but things happened. They drifted apart, but once they reunited in the 1950s, sparks flew once again and they got married. After the marriage, due to her husband's Haitian background, Lois started to travel to Haiti and she began traveling to Haiti a lot. These trips to Haiti began inspiring her art, and she began moving away from her more classical impressionistic style into a more abstract style of painting that was inspired by the art she was seeing on her travels. Two years later, in 1955, Lois was accepted into the Society of Washington Arts and was the first African-American artist, whether male or female, to be accepted into the group, which was a pretty big deal because the society was deeply tied to many major art and design schools across the United States. By the mid-1950s, Lois was bouncing between Haiti, Martha's Vineyard, which she had loved since she was a child and whose landscapes continued to um, inspire her art, and Washington, D.C., where, after all, she taught. Outside of her teaching and her painting, she also began to get slightly involved in some various international affairs. In the 1970s, she organized multiple tours to Africa as part of her role as an ambassador for the United States Information Service, which basically was the U.S.'s public relations firm during the Cold War. 
In addition to being a nice, friendly PR person for the U.S. government, she used these tours as a way to gather research on African artists and contemporary African art to help inform her own work and the work of African artists within the United States. Also, during unrest in Haiti in the 1980s, she used her connections within the country to help out American tourists who were being harassed by the Tonton Makotes, aka the Haitian secret police, and she allowed Americans to use her home in Haiti as a bit of a safe haven place to stay until their papers and passports could be figured out. Once again, Despite these little ventures into international affairs, Lois's life maintained its cycle of teaching, painting art, getting recognized for her talents and winning awards, having gallery shows put on, and using her sway in the art world to help out younger African-American artists. In 1982, her husband died, but she did not let that slow her down, and she continued painting through her 70s and 80s. By then, she was genuinely famous in the art world, and her paintings were getting bought by major museums and galleries with her actual name on them, which had to be pretty nice for Lois. Lois Milou Jones ended up dying on June 9th, 1998, at the age of 92 in Washington, D.C. While Lois never directly worked in Harlem or in New York City, and while a lot of her work happened in the 1930s and later, she still is seen as being very connected to the Harlem Renaissance, albeit the latter part of it. First of all, she was very close to Alan Locke and very much continued his idea of capturing scenes and the reality of African American life. She also had a very close relationship to Howard University. After all, she taught there for almost 50 years. And like I've mentioned so many times before, Howard University was deeply deeply tied to the Harlem Renaissance, and lastly, she really helped bring African themes and imagery and culture into mainstream American art in a non-stereotyped way, which was a huge goal of the Harlem Renaissance. Lois's very early work was very much in the traditional Art Deco style, especially her initial work in prints and textiles. After she shifted more into painting, she really focused on landscapes and still lifes. She was very inspired by the landscapes of her beloved Martha's Vineyard. After her trip to France in 1937, her style shifted to a much more impressionistic style. She was very much inspired by the work of Cezanne, but she also began painting portraits, especially portraits that showed African-American life and African-American subjects. 
her art shifted once again after her marriage and the start of her regular travels to Haiti when she moved to a more abstract style that was inspired by traditional religious Haitian art as well as her past experience in design. Her later art, especially the art she was doing after the 1960s, was very much in line with the growing Black art movement. Basically, the Black art movement came out of the Black power movement of the late 1960s, and its goal was to celebrate African-American pride and culture through the arts and to create a type of art that was distinctly African-American and centered on the Black experience, and you definitely see that in Lois Malou Jones's later work. Lois Miley Jones created a huge number of pieces, but I'm just going to focus on three pieces that I particularly like and that I think demonstrate some of the elements that I've mentioned earlier of her work. First, there's her painting, Les Fetiches, which was created in 1938 during her trip to France. The painting shows five different African masks, as well as a red fetish. And in this case, a fetish isn't some fun, sexy interest. Instead, it's an object, usually a sculpture, that's thought to have some sort of supernatural power. When Lois was working on this painting, she faced a lot of criticism from French painters for using traditional African themes and images, which really irritated her. Lois pointed out that white painters like Matisse and Picasso used African imagery in their paintings all the time and no one cared. So why was it a big deal that a painter who actually had African heritage was using the same images and themes? The painting ended up being a huge success. It's still considered to be one of her greatest paintings. And later on in the 1980s, in an interview she did, Lois said it was one of her favorite paintings that she ever did, as well as a major high point in her career. The next painting I want to talk about is her painting Mob Victim, which she painted in 1944 after she had come back to the United States from Paris. Lois said that she was inspired to do this painting due to her frustration with the fact that lynchings were continuing to happen in the United States even during and after World War II. And in 1937, an anti-lynching bill had passed the House of Representatives but had failed to pass the Senate. And while FDR had created the Civil Rights Section of the Department of Justice, it had failed to prosecute a single lynching until 1946. So, yeah, Jones's frustration, totally valid. Lynching still isn't a federal crime in the United States today. Anyways, back to the painting. Mob victim shows an older African-American man with his hands tied in front of him and his clothes torn looking up at the sky with trees behind him. While we don't know what exactly is going to happen, you get a real sense of foreboding, even though the painting itself is pretty, even though the painting itself is mostly in light colors. 
mob victim is painted in a fairly impressionistic style, except for the man's face, which in my opinion is extremely realistic, only adding to that sense of foreboding. And then the last painting I want to talk about is Veve Voodoo, which Lewis painted in 1963, and which I think is a really, which I think is a very good example of her more abstract style. Veve Voodoo shows two red squares that look almost like old-fashioned TV sets. In each of the squares, there's a series of shapes, including shapes that kind of look like eyes, as well as a series of white lines and dots. Outside of the boxes, you have the words Vivi and Voodoo. In an interview, Lois said that the painting was inspired by the time she partook in a voodoo ritual in Haiti, as well as a necklace she owned that honored the voodoo god of nature. I particularly like this painting because I think it's a great example of her abstract work and the concrete ways that her visits to Haiti directly impacted her work. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Lois Milou Jones. Lois Milou Jones was born in 1905 in Boston, Massachusetts to a working-class African-American family. Growing up, two things really informed Lois. Her childhood summer visits to Martha's Vineyard, where her family rented a summer home, and her love of the arts. Lois attended a local art school and, starting in her teens, got scholarships to take weekend art classes at the Museum of Fine Arts. When she was 17, she had her first official art show in Martha's Vineyard, where she met some Boston-based African-American artists who pushed her to pursue her art career, albeit in France, not in the United States. However, Lois descended However, Lois decided to stay in the United States, and she got a full scholarship to attend the School of the Museum of Fine Arts for college. She graduated with honors, got a master's in textile design, and began working professionally in the field. She sold her designs to local department stores, as well as some national companies, but pretty soon she was frustrated by the fact that her work had to remain anonymous and that many buyers of her textiles refused to believe that an African-American woman was capable of creating such high-quality work. So, in 1928, when she was 23 years old, Lois decided to shift direction slightly. She left Boston and moved down to North Carolina, where she helped create the art department at a high school for wealthy African-American students. Two years later, when she was only 25 years old, she was asked to teach at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where she would stay for the next 47 years, teaching watercolor and design. Through her position at Howard University, she would get to interact with many of the major thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance. Then, in 1937, through a fellowship, Lois went to study in Paris. It was during this trip that her style shifted to a more impressionistic mode of painting, and she began to see some major success when a few of her paintings were accepted into the 1938 Salon. She also became more interested in incorporating elements from African art into her pieces, which helped make her stand out from her contemporaries. By the time she came back to the U.S. in 1940, 
Lois began to turn her art to focus on the daily life of African Americans, specifically how much of an impact discrimination and segregation could have in daily life. Pretty soon, her art was very popular and critically acclaimed, being printed in newspapers across the country, but Lois was still struggling with racial and gendered discrimination. A lot of galleries and art competitions straight up refused to accept entries from African Americans, so Lois had to submit her work under the name of one of her friends from France, Celine Tabary. However, even under a false name, Lois tended to win first prize in many of these competitions, which eventually pushed some museums and galleries to allow her and a select few other African-American artists to submit their work. In 1953, Lois got married to a Haitian artist and designer. After this marriage, Lois began traveling to Haiti, and through these travels, she was inspired to take her work in a slightly more abstract direction. By the 1950s, early 1960s, Lois was bouncing between Washington, D.C., Haiti, and her beloved Martha's Vineyard. She also was getting slightly involved in international affairs. Through the 1970s, she helped organize multiple tours to Africa due to her position as an ambassador for the United States Information Service, and during unrest in Haiti throughout the 1980s, she used her connections within the country to help out Americans who were getting harassed by the Haitian secret police. Lois Milo Jones continued painting through her 70s and 80s before dying on June 9th, 1998 at the age of 92 in Washington, D.C. Lewis's art has, in my opinion, two main sections to it. You have her impressionistic style, which was very much inspired by her trip to Paris, and you see this in a lot of her still lives, landscapes, and portraits, and her portraits tend to be of African Americans and scenes of African American daily life, and then you have her post-Haiti style, which tends to be much more abstract and some people might define as part of the Black art movement, which started in the late 1960s as part of the Black power movement. While Lois Miley Jones never directly worked in New York City and in most of her work in the 1930s and afterwards, she is still considered to be part of the Harlem Renaissance due to her close connection to Alan Locke and the fact that she was so focused on centering African Americans and their daily life within her art, as well as bringing in traditional as well as bringing in African-American themes and imagery in non-stereotyped ways into her art. Most of my research for this episode came from an article on Lois Miley Jones from Martha Vineyard Magazine, the National Museum of Women in the Arts article on Lois Miley Jones, a Smithsonian piece on Le Fetishes, the New York Public Library article on the Black Art Movement, and an interview with Lois Milou Jones from the 1980s. As always, for a full bibliography, as well as relevant images, and because 
It's on a visual artist. There will be many relevant images. You can visit the website, Sad Girl Study Guides. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. As always, if you want to help the podcast out financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Patrons get access to a bunch of cool things at different tiers, including access to the bi-weekly tangent cast, where I talk about a person, place, or thing that didn't quite fit in to a normal length study guide, and other prizes include getting to suggest an episode topic and getting shoutouts. Next time, I will be covering the life of Selma Burke, and that will be the last episode in the series on the Harlem Renaissance, so you definitely don't want to miss it. As always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, and please let us know how we're doing. Read or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!